Glad to see that so many of you canceled your vacations to come back today. So that's good. We'll try to make it worth it for you. I got a letter in the mail a week or so ago. And uh, it was the reminder from my uh, optometrist, or my, op- what's that word? Optometrist. My eye doctor. That's the one. From my uh, optometrist that it was time for my checkup. I had to come in and, you know, to get my eyes. I haven't done it yet, but I need to go in and get my eyes checked. And, and uh, you know, many of you, I look out there and I see your glasses too. Of course, for your contacts, I can't tell that. But, you know, I'm pretty common with regard to the need to have some kind of corrective lenses for my eyes. Otherwise, things are very, very blurry. And, you know, um, you, go to the, you go to the eye doctor and they sit you down in that room and then they put that chart up on the wall. And, uh, you know, I think we have a picture of it there. Yeah, Exactly. They put, that, they put that thing up there on the wall. And I don't know about you, but um, I always feel in a quandary. You know, is it better? They do the little thing where they flip the stuff down in front of your eyes. Is it better this way or that? And I'm positive that I give contradictory answers to the man every single time. I, no, it's better this way. Was well, it better this way or that way? And then I probably tell him the opposite is better. And, and I walk out of there and I wonder... Are my eyes going to be any better or not? So I don't know what they teach in uh, medical school to those fellows that they're able to uh, discern uh, truth-telling from lies, but somehow they're able to do that and to uh, give you the proper, the proper corrective lenses for your eyes. You know, it's so important that we see things clearly, isn't it? If we don't see things clearly, then our ability uh, is uh, severely diminished. And, you know, it's, um, it's important that we understand the kingdom of God clearly and that we focus on it properly. And so there's one thing as we just begin this morning, I want to clear up with you. It, it came up to me in a couple of questions after last week. And, you know, some of these questions, I, I'm not sure exactly where to fit them in. And so I just I want to fit them into the introduction. That's sort of the catch all. And then it doesn't have to flow with the, the outline and structure. So. So as part of that, I want to turn you to 1 Corinthians 15 and just answer a question that perhaps is on your mind as we begin this morning. And we're still talking about the, the message of John the Baptist, just so you don't lose track of where we are. We really are still preaching Matthew's gospel, although we will not go to Matthew's gospel at all today. Uh, and that's just the way it is, because when John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there was a lot of pre-understanding that goes with that message. And because there is so much confusion in the church today, it's quite apparent that the pre-understanding that John's listeners had, we don't commonly share. And so today, and depending how well we do, meaning how glassy your eyes get, we uh, may break this into two pieces, but it will be a survey of the Old Testament at, one, at a certain level where we try to build an understanding of what it means for the kingdom of heaven. But I want to clear this one uh, point up with you in 1 Corinthians 15 and beginning in verse 24. And here's the question, and maybe it's been on your mind, and that is, as you read the Old Testament and you, and you think about the promises that were made to David and, and then reminded again to the house of David through the prophets that his would be an eternal kingdom. And yet you get to the book of Revelation and you read in Revelation chapter 20 and it says that the kingdom is for a thousand years. And so perhaps you are trying to figure out how can it be eternal and a thousand years? How do those two realities fit together? And so Paul explains that to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and beginning in verse 24. Then comes the end, it says, verse 24, and it's picking up, coming out of verse 23, Christ said is coming. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The point that Paul is making here is that Christ's 
kingdom, the mediatorial kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of a thousand years. And by the way, Revelation 20, basically the only thing it really adds to the prophetic picture is that thousand year time frame. That when Christ reigns on earth, on the Davidic throne for a thousand years, at the end of that thousand years, Paul tells us that he then delivers up his kingdom to his God and Father, that it then becomes one. And thus the universal kingdom that we talked about last week and the mediatorial kingdom that had overlap now become completely overlapped and one kingdom. Okay, so that's how that progresses out. That's how a promise of an eternal kingdom that lasts a thousand years can be fulfilled. All right. Does that make sense to you? I hope so. Talking about having things in focus, Paul had the kingdom in focus and it's what drove this man. And as we get the kingdom in focus, properly focused, it will drive us in the same way. Second Corinthians chapter four, Paul makes an amazing statement. Second Corinthians four. In fact, for years, for decades, I have read and been challenged and I'm still challenged as I read and think about the statements that he makes here at the end of chapter four. I think these are some of the most amazing and profound statements the apostle Paul makes. He says in verse 14, knowing that he that is God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Drop down to verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. If you know the life of the Apostle Paul in in even a vague and passing way, you understand that this man suffered. For about three decades of his, of his ministry following his conversion to Christ and culminating in his execution, this man lived a very difficult life. He was consumed by one burning passion, and that was to make Jesus Christ known everywhere regardless of the personal cost involved. And in fact, Paul speaks of this personal cost and and the physical cost that he paid and he calls it a momentary light affliction a momentary light affliction meaning that the worst that could be brought on him in comparison to what he had in store for him was merely a moment and it was light he says now i'm challenged by that I have been challenged by that from, from the time that I first began to follow Christ and, and came across this passage of Scripture. Challenged by that kind of faith. But in my early years, I was also challenged by the fact when I was, when I was really willing to be candid and honest that the thought of heaven sitting on a cloud strumming some sort of harp in this ethereal world was not all that motivating. And, and, a, and the pastor would say that we're going to be in heaven someday. And, and our church service is, is like a down payment. It's like a glimpse of heaven. And I'd look around and I'd think, well, that's all right. It's all right. What am I missing? Am I so unspiritual? These are the thoughts that I had when I was younger. Now I know I am unspiritual. But anyway, well, am, am I so unspiritual that I, that I just can't get this? I came to faith just shortly before I was married, about a year and a half. And so here was the tension. Jesus is coming again, right? Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. But wait till I get married. And I'm, and I'm graduating, you know, graduating college and, and, 
and I want to get a job and I want to, I want to make a mark on the world and, you know, and I want to have children and, and just these things. And, and I think, oh, no, you're so unspiritual. So unspiritual. Why, why don't you just be like the Apostle Paul and, and just, just glom on to this ethereal thing and, and, and that should be enough for you. And it wasn't enough for me. I'm just telling you, it wasn't enough for me. And I struggled a lot to think about that. How come it doesn't? How come heaven doesn't really motivate me? And then I began to think, well, I don't really even know what it is. Nobody's really explained much to me. And then I began to to understand the kingdom of God. And I began to read my Old Testament and, and to begin to take it seriously and to kind of put it together. The kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, my, my eyes kind of opened up to this incredible reality that, that according to, to 1 Corinthians 15 and, and Revelation 20 is this great thousand-year kingdom that will then merge Revelation 21-22 into the eternal state. And all of a sudden, I began to think, you know what? I think one of the reasons that I wasn't motivated before is because I had such a fundamental misunderstanding about what the end really was all about. That the kingdom of God is a, is a physical place in which, in which all the deepest longings of my heart, I'm talking legitimate longings of my heart, will find fulfillment will actually find fulfillment. That which I have been created for will begin to be satisfied. And all of a sudden, I I really started to get fired up. And it's just grown for me through the years. The more I study, the bigger it gets and the more satisfying it becomes. So what I hope to do this morning, beginning this morning and no way we're going to make it now. So I'll cancel another week's vacation. I'm sorry. If you lose your deposit, Carol will, will reimburse you. <laughs> we need to look seriously, think seriously about Messiah's kingdom. My friends, let me, let me say to this to you. You want a picture of heaven There is a great picture and illustration given. It is throughout the scriptures. But it is of Messiah's kingdom. Heaven will be the fullness of Messiah's kingdom absent sin. And Messiah's kingdom, as it's it's portrayed to us, in which sin still exists, is a glorious place beyond anything we know. Anything. Let it fire you up. So here we go. You're going to need to have your Bible ready to follow along. We got a lot of verses to look at. We're not going to have time to make comments on all of them. We're we're just going to have to move through some of this. But there are six aspects. This is the this is the roadmap. Six aspects of the kingdom of heaven. That will that will focus and and clarify our vision. As we begin to to really unpack these six aspects, it will focus, it will clarify our vision regarding the age to come. And that will result in in the ability for us to to not find the seduction of this world to be quite so great. There is a tug of war going on. There is a a picture that's been painted before our eyes of, of this world and it continually pulls us toward it. We need to resist that. And the, and the way we need to resist that is by focusing on the reality of Messiah's kingdom. That if by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sin and embraced him as your savior, then this is where you will be. The mediatorial kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, those are interchangeable words. I'll even say the kingdom. So I'll use those three terms interchangeably. 
mediatorial kingdom, Messiah's kingdom, the kingdom. They are interchangeable terms. The kingdom is a physical place. It is a physical reality. It is entered through a spiritual doorway. That spiritual doorway is regeneration. That was Jesus' message to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Unless you are born again, you cannot see, yea, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But physical as it is, and it is very, very physical, it is not a place without spirituality. In fact, it is first and foremost a place of spirituality. We live in the backwash of platonic philosophy. That is the notion that somehow the spiritual is elevated and noble and good and all that is right. And the physical is low and corrupt and and to be avoided. And that the spiritual is the greater, the physical is the lesser. My friends, nothing could be further from the truth. God created us body and soul. We are a spiritual, physical being. That is who we are. One is not greater or more noble than the other. So we will live in a very physical kingdom in which there is spirituality free-flowing. And that's going to make it a pretty amazing place. Let's take a look at some scriptures together. This is under the heading, the first aspect, spirituality in the kingdom. Spirituality in the kingdom. Every one of these, by the way, could be its own exhaustive Bible study. There's not time for that. I'll get so far lost, we'll never find our way back to Matthew. So it's probably looking at two weeks now already, but no more than two weeks. So we will have to move. Write the verses down. Check them out on your own. Spirituality in the kingdom. Let's just begin in Isaiah. Many call it Isaiah's gospel, by the way. Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. And beginning in verse 7. Spirituality in the kingdom. The first reality of that spirituality is that salvation itself will be widely available to humanity. Widely available to humanity. Salvation is now not, in the same sense, widely available to humanity. There are many places on this planet in which the gospel has not yet reached. That will no longer be true during Messiah's kingdom. The end of verse, or middle of verse 6, by the way, notice the phrase, in that day. I think I told you this last week. If you see that expression, in that day, draw a line under it in your Bible. Become, become acute, become sensitized to that expression. It is a textual clue to, to know what period we are talking about. In that day refers, the majority of the time, to Messiah's kingdom. In that day. Well, what will that day be like? Let's take a look, beginning in verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Check it out. In the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. All the ends of the earth, all the nations, see the salvation of our God. The knowledge of salvation is widely distributed. It is no longer hindered as we find it today. Secondly, there is overflowing joy 
in this kingdom. The very widespread knowledge of salvation leads to joy. Overflowing joy. Isaiah 51 and verse 11. So the ransomed of the Lord will return and will come with joyful shouting to Zion. And everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I can hardly read that without wanting to sing it. Without wanting to sing it. Overflowing joy will characterize Messiah's kingdom. Regeneration or the new birth will characterize Messiah's kingdom. Ezekiel chapter 36. Thirty-six and verse twenty-four. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. The new covenant will come to full effect in the nation of Israel. And as it comes to full effect in the nation of Israel, the world at large will benefit. We today in the age of the church, we have access through the blood of Jesus Christ into this new covenant now. But it is still in a very, in in one sense, a very narrow and select remnant. Someday it will be thrown wide open, Paul says, Romans chapter 11, 10 and 11. The branches that were snapped off will be grafted back in. A time of regeneration, or as Jesus words to Nicodemus in John 3, we will be born of spirit and water. John 3, verses 5 and 10. It'll also be a time of justification. A time of justification. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23 and verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness, the Lord, our righteousness. The name of the very king himself will be righteousness, thus assuring the justification of all his subjects who follow him by faith. It'll be a time of forgiveness, a time of intimacy with God. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34. Jeremiah 31 and 34. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. It will be a time of forgiveness and forgetting of the transgressions, the iniquities. A time of intimacy with God. These things we enjoy now by faith in Christ, by the indwelling Spirit of God. And yet we, endure, we enjoy them as it were only as a foretaste of what is coming. There will be in a much greater and fuller extent than anything you and I know now. It will be a time in which holiness 
will, will predominate the world. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14. Verse 20. Zechariah 14, 20. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Holiness will be commonplace in that day. The bells on the horses, the cooking pots in the kitchens, the most common and elementary aspects of life will be holy unto the Lord. Why? Because God's sanctuary will be among His people, Ezekiel 37. Verse 25. Ezekiel 37 and 25. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever, forever, forever. spirituality in this great kingdom. God dwelling among His people. Forgiveness and intimacy with God made available to all by the the justification of the very King Himself. He whose name is righteousness. Overflowing joy springing from the wells of salvation. Well, the prophet Isaiah again says that the knowledge of God will, will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. My friends, this is not the world we live in today. This is a far cry from the world in which we live today. Our focus today is a, is a missionary focus. It's a missionary enterprise. It's to go and to make known the glories of God. And it's against all kinds of hindrances and obstacles. Things that the Apostle Paul calls momentary light afflictions. But someday they'll be gone. Someday the knowledge of God will flow. We will live in a, in a world in which the deepest longings, spiritual longings of our heart will find their fulfillment and satisfaction. No longer will we find ourselves in the tension day to day, moment to moment that you and I find ourselves in. The kingdom of God is a spiritual place. A spiritual place. Second aspect is because of the widespread spirituality of Messiah's kingdom, there will be widespread morality in Messiah's kingdom. The morality of the kingdom. I can say it that way. And for that, we need to go to Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 2. Think of the world in which we live. One thing we could say for sure is that God's standards of righteousness do not predominate, do they? God's standards of righteousness are not widely known nor widely accepted. It seems like every day those standards of righteousness are being eroded and chipped away at. It will not always be that way. 
In Messiah's kingdom, there will be a widespread morality that will cover the earth. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How different that would be, huh? That people will pour in from the ends of the earth and say, Teach us about your God. We want to know Him. We want to know His standards. We want to know His laws. We desire to live under them. Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Quoted for John the Baptist's ministry, right? A voice is calling Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Straighten out your lives. God is here. God's standards of righteousness will prevail in Messiah's kingdom. Truth will be the atmosphere of the world. Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 3. This will be the moral atmosphere of the world in which we will live. Truth. Zechariah 8 and verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. The city of truth. As we'll learn when we look at the political aspects of the kingdom, Jerusalem will be the capital city of Messiah's kingdom and thus the capital city of the world. And it will be called the city of truth. Now stop and think with me for a moment. Think of the world capitals. If there was one word I could use to characterize the capitals of the nations of this world, it would not be the word truth. Is that right? They have perfected deception. They have taken it to a very high art form. How unlike Messiah's kingdom the world currently is. Truth is not the precious commodity that we would long for it to be. But my friends, it will not always be that way. It will not always be that way. There will be a world in which morality is sought and taught. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 and 23. A world in which morality will be sought and taught. Thus says the Lord, chapter 8 and verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, And the inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Now, that's evangelism. That's evangelism. When they are begging you, they are, they are clinging to your pant leg. They are saying, drag me into the presence of God. How unlike the world in which we live. Huh? How unlike the world in which we live. Ezekiel 37 Sorry, I dropped Isaiah 54. Sorry, we already been to Ezekiel 37, I thought. Oh, I used the same passage twice. No, I didn't. Isaiah 54. 
Morality will be taught. Messiah's kingdom. Verse 13, 54 and 13. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. All of your sons will be taught of the Lord. Think about that. Just think about that. The moral instruction of the young will be commonplace in Messiah's kingdom. Chapter 30 of Isaiah. Twenty and twenty-one. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, He, your teacher, will no longer hide Himself. But your eyes will behold your teacher, and your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. What a beautiful picture! God will be as it is, as it were, whispering in your ear. This is the way. Walk in it. Widespread moral instruction in which God himself will be instructing people. What a glorious kingdom. What a kingdom that is different than the kingdoms of this world. How different life will be. In fact... Let's talk about society in the kingdom. What will society be like in the kingdom? It will be time of widespread spirituality, that we know. It'll be a time of of global morality, that we know. So what will society look like when spirituality is, is no longer confined to a few? In which the morality of God is no longer opposed, but is embraced? What would society look like? How different would it be? Isaiah 65. There's one thing that we can say about society today. It is that the weak and the defenseless are taken advantage of. The weak and the defenseless are oppressed. The weak and the defenseless are cruelly robbed. It is not just true of our day. It has been true throughout human history. A few wealthy, powerful people have oppressed and taken advantage of those who are weak and defenseless. Social injustice is a, is a real issue that any thinking person recognizes as a tension. 65 and verse 21. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen one shall wear out the work of their hands. The poor will no longer serve the man. Working their fingers to the bone for the, for the improvement and betterment and, and enrichment of a select few. No longer will they build their own house with their hands and someone come along and rip them off and take it from them. Whether it be the unscrupulous lenders of our day who through their schemes in the subprime mortgage market, have oppressed the poor and stolen their properties out from underneath them. Wall Street bankers who have enriched themselves selling financial products that they knowingly realized had no hope of ever being repaid. Laughing all the way as they collected tens of millions of dollars in bonuses while they stole people's pensions and retirement funds. My friends, we live in a day and an age where there is oppression going on all around us. 
And these are but just a few illustrations. It has been the history of the world that the poor have been oppressed by the rich and the powerful. Should not be. Psalm 72. Seventy-two and verse four. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. The margin note of the NASB it says, "He will vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor." Verses twelve and following. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence and their blood will be precious in his sight. How unlike this world. How unlike this world. Who stands up for the poor and the needy among us? You cannot read the Old Testament and not know that they are the closest to God's heart. Those who are weak and defenseless. God judged the nation of Israel because of a refusal to heed the cry of the poor, the afflicted. And yet we live in a world in which we make merchandise of people. Not in Messiah's kingdom. Not in Messiah's kingdom. Isaiah 61. And verse 4. The ruined cities will be repaired, the prophet says. Isaiah 61 and 4. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Think about the cities, the grinding poverty, the horrible living conditions, the slums, as it were. It's easy for us to ignore it. We drive by it, we build freeways over it, we go around it, we don't live in it. We put our hand to our eye when we drive by because we don't want to see the urban blight that has been wrought upon people. Visit the major cities of the world. Look at them. America the beautiful. Her alabaster cities gleaming in the sun. My friends, it's not true. It's not true. And yet someday, someday in Messiah's kingdom, those ancient ruins, those those piles of rubble that we now call the inner city will be rebuilt. The devastation will be repaired. People will no longer have to live like rats condensed into a single cage in which there is Little air conditioning in the summer and not enough heat in the winter. In which running water sometimes is a question mark. Basic sanitation. And yet this is the world in which we live. But it will not be that way forever. It will not be that way. Justice will prevail. Justice will prevail. Back to Psalm 72 again. Seventy two and verse seven. Again, adopting the marginal reading of the NASB. In his days will the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. Jeremiah thirty one. 
and verse 29. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. What's he talking about? He's saying it is the sin of the fathers that are now felt by the children. The innocent punished for the guilty. I can find no no clearer illustration than than the tragedy of abortion in our own land. How can it be? How can it be? That the sexual sin of the parents is now taken out on the child. The innocent die in place of the wicked. How can it be? And yet we grow cold to it. We grow callous to it. It's a statistic and nothing more. Where is the justice? It will not always be that way. There is a kingdom coming when the wrongs will be made right. When the children will no longer suffer for the guilt of the father. The prophet says each will die for their own iniquity. Where generational sin and its consequences will no longer be the norm. But it's not today. It is not today. What a contrast. What a stark contrast between this world, this age, and the age to come. We'll go on next week. But let me say this to you. When we try to squeeze out of this age those things which can only be had in the next, we are on a fool's errand. We are on a fool's errand. And yet how much time do we spend seeking to gain satisfaction in a broken world that can never satisfy? Can never satisfy. The deepest pains and longings of the human soul will never be satisfied in this age. It doesn't matter how much money and wealth one accumulates. It doesn't matter how happy your marriage, how wonderful your children, what a great job you got, what a fabulous education you have received, what a swanky gated neighborhood you live in. You will never, ever find the satisfaction of your soul because this world is broken. It is broken. But Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will turn things right side up. In light of that, what's a little momentary light affliction, huh? What's a little bit of difficulty? What's a little bit of sacrifice? And yet I find it so hard in my own heart to fight the struggle, to fight the fight. I lose focus, I can't see the target. I get caught up with all kinds of other things. And I'm not alone. I am not alone. My friends, the the solution when you have eye problems is is to go get corrective lens, right? It's not to take these things off and wander around thinking, who are you? 
There you are. Right? So you get the right prescription. So you can begin to see reality. God has given us the right prescription. May we become students of this word so that it so changes our way of thinking that we can begin to see the world for what it really is and how God would have us live as strangers, pilgrims, aliens, travelers passing through. But this world is not our home. If you know Jesus Christ by faith today, you are a citizen of Messiah's kingdom. You're in the wrong neighborhood. But God's put you here for a time, for a purpose. Someday you're going home. May that encourage your hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, I, I just want to confess. I want to confess, O oh Lord, that our that our understanding of Messiah's kingdom is is truncated and at times ineffectual because the amount of effort we have put into reading and understanding the Old Testament is truncated. Oh, Lord, there is a direct correlation between time spent seriously reading and, and thinking about your, world, your word and, and our view of, of the world at large. Oh, Lord, we can never see reality as it truly is unless we see it through your eyes. In your light, we see light, the psalmist says. Our Father, may you... May you help us, may you motivate us, may you encourage us, may you enable us to begin to, to gain a perspective on life. May that motivate us to, to speak and to live in, in light of the reality of the age to come. We ask these things in the name of our great King, Jesus Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen and amen.